you think it's nearly impossible for Muslims to come to faith in Christ, we've got a story for you. Actually, we've got several stories, and they're all about the God of the impossible. You're going to love the encouragement you find as you join us for this week's edition of The Land and the Book. We're going to update you on all the headlines out of the Middle East and answer some puzzling Bible questions all on our program, If We've Never Met. I'm John Geiger, introducing the host of The Land and the Book, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Welcome, Charlie. Oh, thank you, John. It's great being back with you. I love the way that uh, you take such a broad look at the Middle East. You, you look at how many different sources every week when we come together for this current event segment? Oh, you know, it varies uh, a little bit every week, but it's probably between uh, 20, 25 different sources. Uh, I, I just, I'm a news junkie, yeah. and I love that area of the world, so I'm always looking for additional sources and sometimes get actually some fascinating surprises. Yeah, well, I think the fact that you're looking so broadly, so widely, does give us the assurance that you really do have your finger on the pulse of the Middle East. So let's, let's hear our first story of the day. Western and U.S. diplomats continue their last-ditch effort to revive the nuclear agreement with Iran before time runs out. Can an agreement still be reached, Charlie? And what happens if they can't come to an agreement? Yeah, right now, both sides are playing a very high-stakes game of chicken. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken recently said time was running out for Iran to return to the nuclear accord, though he didn't say what would happen if they refused to do so. Iran responded by removing its chief nuclear negotiator and replacing him with a hardliner who's been opposed to making any concessions to the West. From the U.S.'s perspective, Iran needs to stop its current violations of the agreement and return to discussions on possible changes, including limiting their research on missile technology and ending their support for regional terrorism. In exchange, the U.S. would then re-enter the agreement and drop the sanctions. Iran is instead demanding that the U.S. re-enter the agreement as it was originally fashioned and provide guarantees that any future administration couldn't walk away from it again. They also reject any changes to the agreement and they want an immediate end to all sanctions. Now, recent events, like the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan, have encouraged the Iranians to stick with their hardline approach, believing the U.S. doesn't have the strength or determination to pursue the alternative, which would involve military confrontation. Iran also feels confident because the International Atomic Energy Agency recently refused to issue a formal diplomatic censure against them for their lack of cooperation with nuclear monitors. The IAEA is trying to coax Tehran back to the nuclear accord, but Tehran sees this as another example of how taking a hardline stance ultimately pays dividends. The likelihood is that the two sides will come to some sort of an agreement. Iran wants sanctions removed, and the West is anxious to avoid a military confrontation. Israel's concern is that a bad deal could be worse than no deal, mm -hmm. because the U.S. could try to tie their hands to keep them from stopping Iran's push toward acquiring atomic weapons. And should Iran continue to stall, Israel might decide to act before it becomes too late. Well, here are two statements that sound like they're from Ripley's Believe It or Not. Statement number one, the Taliban are descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. And statement number two, the Taliban's version of Islam comes from India, not the Middle East. So are they fact or fiction? You know, surprisingly, John, both could very well be true statements. In terms of the first statement, there are some connections between the Taliban and the Jews that seem to be more than just mere coincidence. For example, the Taliban circumcised their male children on the eighth day. They also refrained from mixing meat and milk, and they light candles on the eve of the Sabbath. 
They also practice Leverite marriage, where a widow marries the brother of her deceased husband. Now, before the rise of Islamic fundamentalism in the region, many of the Pashtuns from whom the Taliban arose referred to themselves as Bani Israel, that is, sons of Israel. That oral tradition has been passed down through generations and has been attested to by travelers and historians as far back as the 13th century. And some DNA studies have found a genetic connection to the Jewish people in at least one of the Pashtun clans. Hmm. Now, in terms of the Taliban's brand of Islam, it also seems to have originated about 150 years ago in a small town in India, about 100 miles north of New Delhi. Muslim scholars there began a seminary which taught that Muslims needed to return to the core principles of Islam in response to British colonial rule over India. They believed that turning back to the principles of Islam would allow them to be free from enslavement to foreigners. They eventually spread their teaching throughout South Asia, and schools uh, were set up to promote their version of Islam along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. The founder of the Taliban, Mullah Muhammad Omar graduated from one of these seminaries in Pakistan, along with several other Taliban leaders. However, the Taliban have diverged somewhat from the original teaching that began in India by mixing it with another strain of ultra-conservative Sunni Islam, usually connected with Saudi Arabia. But the bottom line is that at least some of the Taliban might have descended from the ten tribes of Israel taken into captivity, and their brand of Islam actually originated in India before being influenced by a similar strain of Islam out of Saudi Arabia. Appreciate your spending time with us today at The Land and the Book, coming to you from Moody Radio in this great station. I'm John Gager with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar, and we're looking at current events that have been unfolding throughout the week. Archaeologists are expressing concern over recent renovations at the Acropolis in Athens, which they believe are threatening to erase the site's history. So what exactly is happening that is causing them to raise this ominous alarm? Yeah, from my perspective, John, it looks like this might be a case where the actual problem isn't as serious as the warning suggests. Uh, these archaeologists claim the renovations are threatening to erase the site's history. One claimed the site was almost unrecognizable when it reopened after being closed for five months. You know, that makes it sound as if you know, they're tearing down the Parthenon or dismantling one yeah. of the other temples on the site. Uh, the reality is far less dramatic. Workers had paved over portions of the rocky summit to create wide concrete paths for tourists, making it easier for those with mobility issues to make their way around the top. They also reconstructed a marble staircase on the site's western slopes. The scholars said the plan amounts to a Disneyfication of the site that erases significant history before and after classical antiquity. So what exactly has been covered by the concrete? <laughs> Primarily bedrock. Here's the real issue. Purists want the site to remain as untouched as possible so future generations of scholars can perhaps discern meaning and relevance from something as seemingly insignificant as a chisel mark in the bedrock. And they view all historical periods as being equally important. But the Greek government needs to balance those desires with two very practical concerns. First, the vast majority of tourists coming to Athens are interested in seeing the structures from the classical Greek period, you know, like the Parthenon. And second, sites need to be made more accessible to accommodate those with mobility issues. 
the government's trying to balance the desires of scholars with the physical needs of visitors Mm -hmm. and the economic needs of hotels and restaurants and shopkeepers who make their livelihood off those wanting to come and see the site. So as this controversy shows, sometimes it is nearly impossible to find a balance that can satisfy everyone. Well, as the world struggles to keep up with the demand for electricity to run our homes, offices, schools, and businesses, an Israeli startup believes it has a way to help solve the problem. Charlie, tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, this Israeli company, it's named TurboGen, has developed a small, lightweight, easy-to-maintain microturbine that can simultaneously generate electricity and heat and also provide ultimately the power for cooling. Now, these turbines can replace boilers and air conditioners in multifamily residential buildings, you know, public buildings, hotels, hospitals, offices, uh, buildings that are somewhat larger. But using a proprietary jet propulsion technology actually developed by Raphael Advanced Defense Systems in Israel, uh, TurboGen's microturbines use natural gas to generate combined cooling, heating, and power. Eventually, these turbines will be able to be powered by a renewable energy source like biogas or even hydrogen. Now, the gas goes into the turbine to generate electricity. The hot air that's produced is collected and ultimately used for the heating and cooling. A standard generator, John, normally reaches 35 to 40 percent efficiency in terms of the energy it produces. This microturbine will reach 90 percent efficiency. And the system's designed to run for years before needing any maintenance. Hmm. The very first system is scheduled to be installed in New York City by the second half of next year. The company's business model doesn't require the customer to purchase the system. The company will install the system, and the customer simply sign a long-term lease to buy the energy generated by the system. Leasing a system that can provide an apartment building with dependable supply of electricity, heat, and AC for less than what they're paying now, well, that does sound like the kind of helpful innovation we've come to expect from Amazing Israel. Well, it does indeed. Thank you, Charlie. We're looking forward to your devotional. Tell us what we can expect later on. Well, we're continuing our study of the seven churches in Revelation, and we're going to head to the church in Smyrna. Okay, we'll look forward to that and a whole lot more before that. We've got a conversation about Muslims meeting Jesus, questions and answers. Maybe one of them's yours. So stick around for the entire broadcast we call The Land and the Book. Up next, it's Muslims meeting Jesus here on The Land and the Book. Islam is often depicted today as militant, violent. Muslims are thought to be entrenched in their faith and unreachable with the gospel. Is that true? Well, the real story is that many Muslims are actually coming to faith in Jesus. Though the media is saturated with bad news, the gospel is full of good news that is transforming lives across the globe, one believing Muslim at a time. And you're about to hear the stories for yourself up next on The Land and the Book. Welcome back. I'm John Geiger. Before we get to today's guests, here's a thought on how you and I can reach out to a Muslim friend. Loyalty is one of those values everybody seems to esteem, but it's seen differently through the lenses of Christianity and Islam. Let's talk with Samia Johnson, who's written the guide to loving your Muslim neighbors. How do we use loyalty in a conversation that's of redeeming value? Let me tell you, John, that Muslims look at Christians 
in a different way than they look at their Muslim friends. They trust us. Hmm. They trust true Christ followers because they know Christians do not lie. Is that why Saddam Hussein, for example, hired so many Christians in his uh, circle during yes, his days? Yes, most of the Islamic leaders hire cooks and physicians and people. They surround themselves with Christians, not with Muslims because of that. The other part of loyalty in the Islamic world is if there was something that I didn't believe was right or someone is being harmed because of a principle I don't agree with, if this is against Islam, I have to be loyal to Islam mm. more than to my conscience. So how can I redeem this, though, uh, in a discussion about faith? I mean, that's very different how Christ followers see uh, their conduct. Muslims are usually amazed about the promises of God that never change in the Bible. And this is part of loyalty that they don't realize that exists because Allah is a progressive God. He might change his mind anytime. So this loyalty from their God reflects in their life while when they are introduced to Jesus and the promises of God and the God that does not change, they start the journey of understanding what true loyalty means. Samia Johnson has written the guide to loving your Muslim neighbors and serves with her husband at Call of Love Ministries. We are delighted to welcome back to The Land and the Book Dr. Samuel Naman, Vice President of Call of Hope USA and Professor of Intercultural Studies at Moody Bible Institute, as well as Reverend Stefano Fair. He is President of Call of Hope Ministries. Stefano's 20 years of ministry among Muslims have taken him to both urban and rural areas throughout the Islamic world. These guys have gotten together and uh, pooled their stories and present them now in the book, God of the Impossible. Stories of Hope from the Muslim World, brought to us by Moody Publishers. And there are so many to dig into. We have just got to get going. First, I'll say welcome back. Stefano, good to have you with us. It's great to be with you, John. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Naman, thanks for it's sharing your It's always a pleasure to be with you, John. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Well, let's dig right in. Uh, how about a story of how Christ has made a difference in the life of a, a Muslim? One of your favorites, Stefano, of late might be what? Well, maybe Abdul from Nigeria, very, very dear friend of mine. Abdul, he grew up in a totally Muslim family. When he was very young, he had to stay every night in a mosque. Uh, during the day, he was begging for food. And during the night, he had to study the Quran. And then Muslims understood, oh, this Abdul, he is really a capable guy. And they gave him a very important duty. They told him, Abdul, you're the one going into a Christian church and spy. You sit there, you listen, and you come back and tell us what is happening. And he was doing this for years. And he was perfect in what he did. Hmm. The Christians had no idea what is happening and they liked him, you know, and they asked him, hey, would you like to come for baptism class? He said, sure. After some time, they asked him, would you like to be baptized? Of course. They asked him to preach in church. They even elected him youth leader. But don't forget, he always was still a Muslim. And 
One day he was asked to come to a Christian youth event. He hoped he could actually be the speaker there, but they said, no, you are just here to listen with 2,000 others. And there was an old man, and this old preacher man stood up and said, today we are talking about who is the one and only true God. And he talked about 1 Kings chapter 18. And of course, we all know the story of Elijah. And he came to the point uh, where he read and said, if Baal is God, follow him. But if the Lord is Lord, then follow him. And Abdul was sitting there and felt like, who told this guy about me? Hmm. This is only about me. Hmm. He knows that I'm playing a double game. And he didn't know what to do. And this old preacher man said, hey, if you today want to give your life to Jesus, then stand up. And he felt like, I cannot stand up. How is this possible <laughs> to stand up? I'm, I'm a respected Christian leader. But he said it was like a hook. Something came down, took him up, pulled him up. He stood there, the only one of 2,000 people. And he gave his life to Christ. Interestingly, John, this was the moment where his life changed, of course, but where also persecution came in his life. Because mm. until then, everybody loved him. The yeah. Christians loved him and the Muslims loved him. But then at this moment, the Muslims hated him and they were after his life. Mm. He found a Christian wonderful wife. Uh, together, they really took the decision to invest their lives to reach out to Muslims. I guess they didn't really know what they decided because this decision costed them a lot. I mean, many times they tried to kill Abdul and his family and still he stays with the Lord. He once told me, he said, I'm ready to stay in the north of Nigeria, even if we are killed. I'm ready to stay there, but I'm only ready to stay as long as you are ready in the West to pray for us. Mm. If you tell us, hey, we, we don't have time, we don't want to pray for you anymore, tell us, because then we need to stop our work. Wow. And I see how important the love of Jesus is in his life. You know, he is even ready to help Muslims. It, it, it was hard for him. You know, we, we started what we call the GOAT project. We, we helped um, Christian converts, uh, Christian children to go to school again by giving them a goat. And this goat gave little, uh, little goats and then they could um, sell these goats and go to school. Wonderful project. But then the Muslims approached Abdul and asked him and said, hey, why do you only help Christians and not us Muslims? And he answered, no. He said, no, we will not do that. This is for Christians. But he went home and, and he felt that it was not right. You know, he yeah. felt the Lord tells him, see, you cannot only talk about love. You cannot only say God is love and Jesus loves you and then show them hate. And that was the moment when he and his 40 co-workers decided to even give the goats, which they got for themselves to give to Muslims. And then the story changed. You know, Muslims felt, we hate these Christians, 
but they love us. They even give their property to us. Until today, thousands came to the Lord, not because of the goats, but because of the love Abdul and the others were able to show. God of the impossible, stories of hope from the Muslim world. That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book. We've just heard from Pastor Stefano Fair. And uh, now Dr. Samuel Naman has a story of his own, this one uh, based in the Middle East. Yeah, I would like to share the story of my dear brother, uh, Dr. Isaac. Uh, brother Isaac is from Turkey. Mm-hmm. I was raised in a conservative Muslim home, grew up um, as, as any child, uh, wanted to learn the, uh, the Quran and, and, and uh, basically learn a lot. Yes. So, I mean, he grew up, but he also liked life. And as a, as a teenager, uh, he was uh, part of many things years ago in what was happening in Turkey. Mm-hmm. But long story short, um, he ended up studying Islamic theology actually in Turkey and was sent for, for further studies in Iraq to study Islamic theology. And he had some interactions with uh, Armenian Christians there. When he came back, he was appointed by, by the Turkish government to be an imam of a local mosque. So he was very well respected and he was an eloquent Muslim cleric, very good mm-hmm. in what he was doing. But he was uh, also leading a duplicit life. Uh, outwardly, he was leading prayers and all those things. But uh, after the prayer and all those things, uh, he, it was very common for him to go and get a drink. Drink means underground wine, beer, whatever. And his younger brother actually knew about his, uh, his life uh, of duplicity. You know, on one hand, he's a cleric, very well respected. So when uh, he started getting stipend from the Turkish government, uh, he told Brother Isaac that, uh, you know, you need to give me money because uh, you're having this uh, uh, dual life. And he said, no, I'm the one who's, who's working hard. Why should I give you? <laughs> but anyway, he threatened him. He said, if you don't give me, I'm going to report. I'm going to tell people actually what kind of life do you have? So it went, you know, for, for quite some time. He became very popular and he started uh, engaging with, uh, you know, meeting with different people, his yeah. Iraqi friends and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And during this time, he, he realized how, how hard it is for him to live uh, this kind of life. And those days, radio was very, very popular. And as we are doing a radio show, I just want to also share with you the importance of radio programs. Uh, one day he was with his Iraqi friends, you know, just hanging out or whatever. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, somehow, he and his friends, they wanted to get some information from Iraq because by that time, Iraq uh, had started the war with Iran. And they stumbled on this radio station. And then later on, they discovered it's a Christian radio station. And the, the person who was doing this radio program, actually, I know him. Uh, he's, very, he's an elder now, very mm-hmm. elderly gentleman. But towards the end, somehow through this weak signal, uh, he was uh, sharing the, about the story of the woman, the adulterous woman who was caught in adultery and, and the people brought to Jesus. And uh, in John 8, 7, uh, the words of Christ was, are very clear that he heard. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, as we read in John. This one verse caught Brother Isaac's attention and he said, Wow. So in Islam, I know what will happen. She should be stoned and, yes. and all those things. Yes. But how come Christ shares this one word you know, to this woman and basically uh, forgives her sins? And that one verse caught his attention and then the transformation actually started happening. So he wanted to know more. And he said, you know, if there is hope for this adulterous woman, there is hope for me too. So he was introduced to Call of Hope literature, started writing 
correspondence. These are old correspondence days by letter writing yeah, and yeah. getting courses and booklets. But then he wanted to read the Bible. And he said, okay, he, he couldn't find a Bible those days in Turkey. But uh, in the university that he was also teaching, there was an interfaith group, a group of European pastors coming. So, okay, then he said, well, you know, now I'll have a chance because I'm sure these Christians will have the Bible and they are coming here. So he reached out to them and he said, you know, can I have a Bible? Can you give me a Bible because I cannot find one? And uh, one of the pastors said, why will you need the Bible? You have everything in Quran, so read your Quran. You don't need the Bible. And he was really put off and got very upset and angry. And uh, he didn't fight with them, but I mean, that kind of confused him, I will say so. But anyway, finally, through through the correspondence and Call of Hope literatures, uh, he was able to get a Bible and started reading. But from that time on, John, I have met him and I have ministered with him in many countries. Again, it shows the importance of the Word of God, why Bible is important. And I also want to share, you know, I mean, I... My father, who was a former Muslim, he always also told me, and I share this with my students here too, the sooner you bring a Muslim to reading the Word of God, of course, podcasts and other things also, but Bible, yes, the better off you are. Because the Bible is such a powerful tool that the Lord uses. Now think about it. For Brother Isaac, it was only one verse. And we can give you story after story after story how Christian calendars are produced by Call of Hope. Even in Braille, the blind children, we have seen them in the Bekaa Valley in our blind center. The small children, blind children, just reading the Braille one verse for one month. And the Lord touches them in mighty way. So again, in Brother Isaac's testimony, we know how one verse yes. changed his life. And the rest is history. As always, our time goes too quickly. That's Dr. Samuel Naman, along with Reverend Stefano Fair. They've teamed up on the Moody Publishers book, God of the Impossible, Stories of Hope from the Muslim World. We have just scratched the surface. You'll want to read these stories. It's not a big, huge book, but it's just jammed with encouraging reminders that no one is beyond the love of Christ. It's called God of the Impossible from Moody Publishers. Charlie Dyer is next with a fresh set of questions here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. And you know, Charlie, uh, earlier this morning, I was looking through uh, one of our listeners' email and just really, really intrigued by the fact that uh, we have got listeners who think deeply. You know, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved to God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or correctly handling the word of truth. I get the sense that's the desire of our listeners, and they're doing such a great job. They really are, and... As a teacher, that just gets me excited because you want to know your students are moving forward. They're, they're advancing, and, and uh, that's what I get as I read their questions. Doug listens to us from Mesa, Arizona, and says, I love the land and the book. Never miss an episode by podcast. All of it's great, and I especially love the summary of news events with Charlie's explanation. So thanks for doing that, Charlie. All right, here is his uh, question. Why is the account of the woman caught in adultery at the beginning of John chapter 8 included in the actual Bible text rather than footnoted. From my studies, most Bibles indicate that the reliable early manuscripts omit this story, although this event may be historical and doesn't contradict Scripture. In other cases like this, for example, Matthew 23, 14, the text in question is often footnoted rather than included. I know it's a famous and well-loved passage, but shouldn't accuracy 
prevail over tradition? Yeah, and my answer is going to be a bit complex, but let me try to summarize. We don't have the original manuscripts of the Gospel of John or any of the other books of the Bible, so the text is determined by comparing different manuscripts. Many of the early manuscripts don't have these verses, though some do. And a few manuscripts have the passage, but in a different location. Now, because of this uncertainty, the passage is usually included, though, set off with some sort of marker to indicate it might not be part of the original text. Accuracy is indeed a key consideration, but the length of the passage and the fact that there is at least some uncertainty is likely why translators have decided to treat it in this fashion. The fact that Jerome included it in his Vulgate translation of the Bible and the translators of the King James Version also included it might also have influenced modern translators to approach the problem the way they have. Joyce asks, I was at a conference where it was stated more than once that Christian Jews still need to follow the Old Testament laws, not the man-made ones. Is there scripture to back this up? Uh, I do not believe Jewish followers of Jesus need to follow the Old Testament laws. While much of what Paul wrote in this regard focused on the fact that Gentiles don't need to follow the Mosaic law, yet he also provided an interesting illustration in in Galatians chapter 2 in verses 11 to 21. Peter was in Antioch and eating with Gentiles, presumably eating non-kosher food. But when Jews came from Jerusalem, Peter pulled back from doing so. And that's when Paul rebuked him and called what he was doing hypocrisy. He said to Peter and the others who were there, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Paul reminded Peter and the other Jewish believers that they didn't have to follow the Mosaic law and that what they were doing was eroding the very reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Uh, one other passage, in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Though he's writing mainly to Gentiles there, his point is that regulations on food and drink and festivals and new moon celebrations and the Sabbath were just a shadow of of what was to come. They pointed to Jesus and were thus replaced by the reality of Christ. To require someone to then observe these would undo everything Paul is saying we now have in Christ. Thanks for being a part of The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Gaker with our host, Charlie Dyer. Always glad to be looking at your questions. They challenge us too. Psalm 92, verse 3, the King James Version, mentions a ten-stringed instrument, a psaltery, and a harp. Peter points out other versions use the words lyre and dulcimer. He says, I looked up psaltery and read that it is an ancient instrument like a dulcimer. Some of the older translations, like the King James, say that the lyre played melancholy music, but none of the newer translations use the word solemn or melancholy. Question, do you know why the newer versions don't editorialize about the mood of the music? Yeah, the real issue here revolves around the translation of that Hebrew word, higayon. 
It's a somewhat obscure word that, according to one lexicon, has the idea of muttering, that is, sounds spoken to no one in particular, or meditation. Now, it's translated as resounding music in the New American Standard, melody in the NIV and ESV, solemn sound in the KJV, meditative tone in the Net Bible, and harmonious sound in the New King James Version. So, as you can see, the translations differ quite a bit in what they think was intended by the word. The word was intended as some sort of musical notation, explaining how the psalm was to be played and sung. And the problem is, we don't know exactly what that musical notation means today. That's why there are so many possible translations. If I had to choose one, I'd probably go with the Net Bible in this case. Since the original word had the idea of speaking to oneself or meditating on something, I think the melody probably had some sort of meditative tone or feel but we can't specifically say it's to be melancholy or played in a minor key. That's probably more than what we can get from that one word. Okay. Here's a rather technical question from Robert concerning Jesus as high priest. In Leviticus 16, the high priest enters the Holy of Holies twice, once for himself, once for the people. In the book of Hebrews, we're told of Jesus as our high priest. Hebrews 9.12 says he entered into the holy place by his own blood. In John 20, verse 17 Jesus told Mary not to touch him because he had not ascended to his father. In Matthew 28, 9, he allowed them to touch him. And uh, anyway, he goes on to say, to me, this does not make sense because he says, I am not yet ascended to my father. That sounds like a task Jesus had yet to accomplish, but had to do. I believe he went to heaven, into the heavenly holy place to make atonement for our sins, just as the Old Testament high priest did. Since Jesus was holy, he only had to go in once. Remember, it was not enough to just offer the sacrifice of the animal, but the presentation of the blood in the holy place. It took both actions together. What's uh, what's your response, Charlie? Yeah, and I understand what uh, you're saying there, Robert, but I do have a problem with that position. Uh, when Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood for us. And at the end of that time, he said, it is finished. Uh, the word used was an accounting term that meant the account was paid in full. He also told the thief on the cross that this day is when he would be with Jesus in paradise. So that's where the tree of life is said to be in Revelation 2. And in Revelation 22, it's said to be in the new Jerusalem. So in other words, it looks to me like Jesus' soul and spirit went to be with the Father at the moment of his death. So why would he then have to wait to the moment of his resurrection to present his blood? Well, we can agree to disagree, but I think the better understanding of what Jesus was saying to Mary is that she was not to cling to him because all the disciples, including her, were about to enter into a new relationship with him as their resurrected Lord and Savior. In a few short days, he would ascend to heaven. Here's a question from Terry, rather direct. Is Israel progressively displacing Palestinians via expansion of Jewish settlements? Thank you for any clarification. Yeah, uh, the issue is very complicated, but the short answer is that I believe the vast majority of the Jewish settlements are not displacing Palestinians. Now, here's why I think the issue is so complex. Most of the so-called Jewish settlements are actually towns or bedroom communities right around Jerusalem, built on land that was vacant. Now, I watched Gilo, Harhoma, Ma'aleadamim being built. They're not built over Palestinian homes. Some of the land was used for grazing by Bedouin, but it was not privately held property. Some of the other settlements like Ariel and Moda'in are not bedroom communities near Jerusalem, but they were also built on largely unoccupied land. Now, second, the recent controversy over uh, like the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem 
was also not Jewish confiscation of Palestinian property. Actually, it involved Jewish families who'd had their property confiscated by Jordan in 1948. Jordan then leased the property to Arabs after ethnically cleansing the area of Jews. But the Palestinian occupants weren't given ownership by Jordan. After 1967, the Jewish families were able to reassert their ownership of the property. But they weren't allowed to take over their property until the leases held by the tenants expired, or in a few cases when the tenants ceased to pay rent on the property. Uh, These are issues of private property ownership. The Jewish owners were able to prove in court that they had indeed legitimate property rights. Now, there are also cases where illegal Jewish settlements have encroached on Palestinian land. Some of these are still working their way through the courts. Just as in our country, there are those who try to take the law into their own hands. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to give a simple answer to this question. The problem's complex with a lot of different angles and dimensions, and frankly, our news just gives simplistic answers at times for very complex problems. Charlie, for listeners who are not aware, uh, The Land and the Book is aired on this station as a courtesy. And it's important that listeners who appreciate the broadcast let the management at this station know. One great way, of course, is an email or maybe a letter. Your thoughts? Oh, I agree completely. Uh, the, the management has no idea of knowing whether we're making an impact in your area or not. If this program ministers to you, uh, send them a letter. It will make a big difference for the management, encourage them, and it helps us as well. Thanks for doing that. Up next here on The Land and the Book, it's Charlie Dyer's devotional. You don't want to miss it. Stick around. This is The Land in the Book from Moody Radio, where our teacher Charlie Dyer stands by with his open Bible to the book of Revelation. He's going to give us something of a report card. Charlie, I remember when I was a kid, report card time always made me pretty nervous. Uh, Yeah, we have to stand up and uh, show our parents how well or how poorly we've done over that uh, last marking period. And in many ways, these letters are Jesus' report cards for each of these churches. We'll get to that report card, but first we want to take you to Israel through the eyes of someone who's been there. Listen to this Holy Land experience. Hi, my name is Winfred Neely, and this is my Holy Land experience. It was absolutely wonderful. I still remember uh, sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee in the approximate place where Jesus actually lived. I remember going to the garden tomb where we actually had a communion service, and I was deeply moved as I looked over there and realized that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is risen literally and bodily from among the dead. And I just was reminded of the fact that God became human and lived among people in a specific place and culture and time, and I had the great privilege to experience it firsthand with my Bible in hand. It was an incredible experience. Well, Charlie, we think of the persecuted church as a modern kind of problem, but persecution in the church goes way, way back. Yeah, it does, and uh, we'll see that in God's letter to the church in Smyrna. Now, as our ship arrives at modern Izmir, the view in front of us is spectacular. The large crescent-shaped harbor stretches for miles, making this an ideal seaport. We could have driven here from Ephesus, the 35-mile drive following an ancient overland road, but making the journey by boat was much more scenic 
And our approach to the city by ship helps us understand why Smyrna was an important city in the first century. Much of ancient Smyrna lies underneath the modern city of Izmir. So the ruins are far less dramatic than Ephesus. But a short bus ride into the heart of the city, followed by a walk up an alleyway, brings us to the ruins of Smyrna's Agora, its ancient marketplace. Graceful columns stand beside ancient Roman arches, which once supported structures that have now vanished from sight. Perhaps it's appropriate that the ruins visible to us are those that point to the city's commercial past. Its natural harbor, along with its overland trade routes, made Smyrna an important center for commerce. The city's name is actually something of an enigma. While some think it was named after a mythological female warrior, the word itself is also the Greek word for myrrh, the aromatic resin harvested from trees in the Arabian Peninsula and some eastern regions of Africa. Myrrh was highly prized and was used in incense, perfume, and medicine. While we can't explain how the name might have come to be associated with this city in Greece, there's little doubt that myrrh would have been one of the goods bought and sold in this ancient agora. Certainly, myrrh seems to carry with it a study in contrasts. On the one hand, it was highly prized, very rare, and extremely costly. But on the other hand, it was used to mask the scent of decay, disease, and death. Its pungent aroma hid those other smells in a way that made life more bearable. But behind the fragrance was the reality that life brought with it more than its share of pain, suffering, and anguish. These are what made myrrh so necessary and desirable. While the relationship between the city's name and myrrh might be a mystery, the association was very appropriate for the church that grew up in this city. The church in Smyrna was a church familiar with pain and suffering. And yet their amazing response through it all was like a fragrant aroma to the God they served. In fact, the church in Smyrna is only one of two churches among the seven in the book of Revelation to receive no rebuke from Jesus. The words Jesus does use to describe this church tell us about the struggles they were experiencing, which were the result of active opposition from groups who hated both them and the God they followed. With great tenderness and sympathy, Jesus wrote, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus understood the physical abuse and financial distress that resulted from the discrimination and persecution faced by this struggling group of believers. And he even pulled back the curtain to show that the ultimate reason for their pain was the cosmic struggle between God and Satan. And as bad as it had been, Jesus wrote to remind these believers that the situation was about to get worse. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We're not sure what the specific circumstances were that this church was about to face. Perhaps Jesus was referring to a local pogrom about to sweep through the city, an orgy of hatred, not unlike those that have been directed at other minority groups throughout the ages. And it's at this point where we become unsettled and a bit uneasy. If the trouble was about to break out, why didn't Jesus call on his followers to flee, to run away, to head for the hills? Certainly there are times in the Bible where that is exactly what God said to his followers. 
In Matthew 24, Jesus described a time when an abomination of desolation would be set up in Jerusalem. And he told his followers that when that time came, they were to flee to the mountains. So why didn't he call on his followers in Smyrna to flee from the persecution? And that's the great unrevealed mystery of suffering in the Bible. There are times when God delivers his followers from pain, suffering, and death. But there are other times when his plan is to deliver his followers through pain and suffering. Nobody likes pain. We all want deliverance from difficulty. But God, in his infinite wisdom, allows some to experience persecution and even martyrdom in their service for him. And in those times, the message of God for us, as it was for the people of Smyrna, is not to run away, but to face the opposition without fear and to be faithful to him, even if it results in death. Suffering and persecution have a purifying effect on God's people. It forces them to decide if their faith is living and active, something worth dying for. It puts all the other stuff of life in its proper perspective and strips away the useless baubles and trinkets that otherwise seem so important. In some parts of the world, followers of Christ face the very real possibility of being persecuted or martyred for their faith on a daily basis. That hasn't been the case in several centuries for the church in Europe and the West, but things are changing and we could once again experience a time when faith in Christ will be a life or death decision. As Jesus stressed to his faithful followers in Smyrna, he understands what it's like to physically die. He described himself as the one who was dead and has come to life. He promises to reward those who remain faithful with the crown of life. That is, his reward is eternal life itself. And he reminds his followers that those who are faithful shall not be hurt by the second death. Most fear physical death, but it's the second death, eternal separation from God, that is the ultimate tragedy of life. And Jesus assures his followers that this is the death from which he has saved them. Myrrh was a fragrant scent, highly prized in the first century. And the church of Smyrna, the church of myrrh, was a fragrant aroma to God because they faced unafraid all the fury hell itself could throw against them, and they remained faithful to God through death itself. Well, with the fragrant aroma of this church permeating the air, it's time to board our ship and set sail for the next city on our journey, Pergamum. See you there next week. Well, I'll look forward to that journey as well. Thank you, Charlie. If you appreciate these uh, devotionals that Charlie brings us week after week, did you know, number one, you can hear them again. In fact, the entire broadcast is available to you at the click of a mouse if you'll head to our website, thelandandthebook.org. You can also listen anytime if you've got the Moody Radio mobile app. It's free, available for Android or iPhone. Just search for Moody Radio at your favorite app store. And the cool thing is you can do what I did, set up your presets, your favorites, like The Land and the Book. So there it is, one click. There you are listening wherever you happen to be if you've got this free Moody Radio mobile app. Again, just search for Moody Radio at your favorite app store, and you could listen to The Land and the Book that way. Hey, you know, we don't have any advertising budget here. None. Zip. Nada. Zero. That's why we appreciate it when people like you tell your friends about the program. Let them know why you listen, what you like about it, and what they'll benefit from it if they listen as well. Thanks for doing that, and thanks for making it a point to join us again next week here on The Land and the Book. 
Our time is gone. I'm John Geiger, saying thank you so much to our producer, Dan Anderson, our host, Charlie Dyer. See you next week for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.